Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kyle. Today, I'm very excited because I'm speaking with an old friend. Today, I am chatting with Mr. Peter Munters, the lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter for the band Over It. Peter was also the co-singer and songwriter for the band Runner Runner. I've known Peter now for almost 20 years, which is crazy to say. Game Time had the honor of playing many shows with Over It, and we shared the same stage together on Warp Tour in 2003, the radioactive stage. I really had a great time speaking and reconnecting with Peter. He's always been a very smart and creative person, and I've always admired his ability to write such great melodies and lyrics, and I've just admired the fact that he's such a great person. I also had a deep admiration and love for the band over it in general, really. We were such fans, but they always treated us as equals and with respect, and I always appreciated that. We dig into a lot with this episode. We discuss the history of Over It, as well as the transition into the band Runner Runner. We talk about playing on live television working with different producers, as well as the creative process in general. We also get into what it's like to enjoy the ride of life, how to stay present and open to what possibility may reveal and what opportunities may arise. I think people will get a lot out of this one. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Peter Munters of Over It and Runner Runner. Hey, dude. How are you, man? I'm so good. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice as well. I can see I'm can. sorry, I actually don't have a camera on this system. No worries at all, my friend. It's all good. Actually, probably maybe one-fourth of the interviews that I've done have been like this, so it's all good. Yeah. I'm recording, but I'm just recording the audio, obviously. I think you probably already knew that, or I may have Yeah, yeah, I think you mentioned it. Okay, cool. What mic do you use? I'm always curious what people are using. This is an SM7, Shure oh. SM7B. Cool, Brad. Yeah, nice foundational mic, right? It sounds good. Indeed. It sounds really clear. It can take a beating. Yeah, I like those mics. Those are good to always have in your arsenal. Yeah, they like to. They reject the room really nicely. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for agreeing to chat with me today. Thanks for the invitation. Of course, man. Actually, you were one of the first people I thought of because I kind of had a short list when I first decided to do a music themed podcast. And man, I really want to, I want to know what the over it dudes are up to. I want to know what Pete's up to. Do you go by Pete or do you go by Peter? Both. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, fine with both. What do your parents call you? Both. Okay. I yeah. like that. I feel like Peter predominantly, but 
I don't know. Pete has always sort of been there as well. Yeah. I remember back in the day, I think people were more inclined to call you Pete, but I was just curious if you had a preference. There's something nice about a monosyllabic name. It makes it really convenient and memorable, I guess. Yeah. The only problem is if you have have (laughs) a a name like mine where it could be monosyllabic or it could be two syllables like Kyle. (laughs) Yeah. Kyle just wants to be sung. You just want to Kyle, stretch it out for days. That Still a is... monosyllable though. I in okay. uh, are we recording yet? Because this is this is yeah weird. yeah, yeah we're recording. Record. But I'm um, I you know I edit like a beast, so you never yeah. Know. Well, not, I'm not going <laughs> to betray anyone's confidence here. But in uh in college, I studied ancient Greek a little bit, and my professor early on endeared himself to me, and I think a lot of the other nerds in the class. By I forget the context specifically, but he let us all know that the longest monosyllable in the English language he was aware of was squirreled, the past participle of the verb to squirrel, like to hide nuts away for the winter. <laughs> and so you, you, your Kyle comment made me think about that word, squirreled. Yeah. Because technically, I feel like it's many syllables or just difficult to say. I don't think I've ever actually said that word squirreled in my life. Right? <laughs> is, it, is it is it technical or is it just art? Because I mean, squirreled, to me, it, it flows if you think about it right. Yeah, it could be both. I, I'm going to try to use it in a sentence this week, though. No. <laughs> That's, it's the wrong, wrong season entirely for it, especially out in... Uh, are you still in St. Louis area? I was actually in Kansas City. I'm in Lawrence Kansas currently. Kansas City, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Basically next door neighbors to each other. St. Louis is four hours nice. away. Just uh, on I, I always really loved going to Lawrence too. That's a really cool town. Yeah, you guys, I'm sure you guys played here a lot, right? We were lucky too, yeah. Bottleneck, yeah. Granada, that's maybe right. even some other venues. Yeah, they're yep. both still there, thankfully. Cool. They both that's survived. Awesome. The Granada was a charming, charming spot. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's still one of the most, I'd say, predominant places where they have shows and they seem to be doing well. I think they even did a little bit of renovation over the shutdown and stuff. It's cool. The Marquis has always displayed really prominent, optimistic things over the tenure of them not doing shows. And that's good. That's great. Good to hear. Yeah, my partner will go walk Mass, which is like the main strip, and it's always been fun to kind of see what they've got up on the marquee. Honestly, back on in our heavy touring days, one of my favorite personal pastimes was getting to do like just an exploratory stroll, especially in a new town, going for a walk every day. Yeah. And that strip in in Lawrence, Kansas was is one of my favorites. It stands out of my memory. That's cool, man. Yeah, it's got some charm. There's a lot of local places down there. Yeah. And yeah, places are kind of coming and going, but I feel like every time we go down there, it's cool because we run into the Get Up Kids quite a bit. I don't know any of them personally, but it's just kind of cool to see Matt Pryor and his family eating yeah. brunch. And it's great they're still around there. Yeah, hometown it's pretty crazy. Yeah, that for actually, real. That's a perfect segue. I wanted to ask you: Do you know Ed Rose? You know, I don't. I've never met him. I would love to get him on the show, but I know lots of people who do know him. Yeah, I'm actually. A personal trainer and i train the i know drummer. that <laughs> i know yeah, that about you it's super cool <laughs> thanks man i train the drummer for the casket lottery the current drummer for the casket lottery cool and they put out a record last year and ed rose came out of retirement to mix it oh wow so he's been retired see i'm out of the loop. yeah he is i hate to speak for him because i would love to have a conversation with him but yeah what i gather he has speak as a fan that's what we are here 
Yeah. Ex- yeah. <laughs> no, I totally am massive Ed Rose fan. That's why I'd love to talk to him, but just a legend in the scene. Mixing records and being in a studio environment has damaged his ears in some capacity. Oh, yeah. Terrible tragic. Hear. Yeah. And he, he's still involved with music loosely. He just can't be as prolific with churning out records. And yeah, he has to kind of take it project by project, I think. And oh man, I think he See, ladies and friends. gentlemen. Protect your ears. Yeah, so important, protect right? Your, protect your treasure. <laughs> That's the lesson of the day. I definitely did not. I probably have permanent hearing damage just from standing too close to loud amplifiers for so many years. But Yeah, well, you got you to gotta get the feeling. But, to, you know, life, I mean, life, it, life itself is also very damaging over time, especially <laughs> for us men. The, the ear is designed to, to hold out longer for, for women. I guess they're, they're more important to, uh, to be heard by everyone. Yeah, <laughs> according to Mother Nature. Absolutely. I am definitely the person now where I'll wear earplugs to the shows. I have been for about a decade. For sure. Well, I just want to, I asked about him because he was a character in the iconic landscape of the music over it was listening to in particular in the late 90s that I always kind of hoped and thought we might cross paths with. And we never did. And oh, I don't oh know if he was ever at one of our shows in, in uh, Lawrence or the area, but always loved his work so much what a cool dude yeah it's very possible he seems like a really interesting person he's got a lot of stories but yeah i was right there with you in the late 90s i was discovering that whole scene i didn't even recognize when i was about 16 or 17 when i first heard the get up kids i didn't even know they were from the same area i didn't know they were spread out amongst kansas city and lawrence that's so they cool. were just another band that i was stoked to hear i think i first heard them on a compilation it might have been one of their old labels was it Doghouse? What was the record label they were on? Yeah, 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 Doghouse. Yeah, I think I heard him on a comp. And then I heard Reggie, his first record, and I actually bought it at a skate shop of all places. And it was very quickly, somebody let me know, hey, they're from the same area. These guys are like local heroes. And then all of a sudden they were on 120 Minutes on MTV and they were just kind of exploding. They got signed to Epitaph. It's James, right? James, the guy Mm -hmm. from Reggie and the Full Effect? Yeah, James DeWeese. What a kind and mysterious character that guy is. Yeah. I had never knew him well, but I feel like I had we had friends of friends in common. And there were a few times like on Warp Tour where he would just appear. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm trying to remember where and when this happened, but over it was playing at like 9 p.m. on the Volcom stage, like off in the corner of nowhere somewhere. At the mm-hmm. end of a long day of Warp Tour, James DeWeese showed up and just like, I think gave me a cold beer and it was just so cute and nice. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I don't know if he liked our band or not, but he was just, you know, making the rounds, I guess. And he was super cool. cool. I, I loved Reggie and the Full Effect as well. Oh, same. Yeah, yeah I love totally. those records. Yeah, <laughs> definitely informed my sense of melody. And they're always so simple, too. That's what I loved about Reggie's songs. They were really simple and immediately hooked into your ears. And yeah, you know, just easy yeah, to sing yeah. along to. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure he was probably making the rounds on Warp Tour. He might have been filling in, doing that one keyboard line on a Newfound Glory song or something. That's right. Um, it was something like that for sure. That's cool. I like that band because it was like a, I don't think parody is the right word, but it was just like this overt mix up of something really poppy and and really danceable mm-hmm. into this like punk rock bubble aesthetic it was just cool to like it so yeah. it was also cool to to dance then inherently and yeah uh, absolutely. i really enjoyed that about it it was almost too good to be a joke 
even if that it's, was it's like yeah intent. yeah but just like that like that yeah <laughs> so it may have been his original intent but i remember hearing it i go this is actually really good <laughs> i don't know if i would file uh me first in the gimme gimme's on into the same sort of folder but mm-hmm. again that's it's just like this incredibly iconic cover band no matter who you are but if you know who they are it's it's too good to be a joke right yeah absolutely amazing yeah. I love that they're doing stuff now. They have like a live stream coming out soon or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the last time I saw Me First was actually on Warp Tour in 2001. I was filling in for one of my friends' band and we just happened to sneak in on tour. We had a day off. And that was the last time I saw him play. It was literally 20 years ago. My gosh. Yeah, it's crazy, dude. Yeah, that's awesome. There's There's a pizza spot I order from sometimes right in the neighborhood here in Los Angeles. I live in Atwater Village in East LA. Okay. I was going to ask. Yeah. And there's a bar there that's always playing punk rock music in the evenings. And I've heard me first in the gimme gimme's coming out of the bar several times in recent history. And it's really nice. That's rad. That's, that's a place I would want to venture (laughs) to and just hang out at. I think. I don't know if the guy is, is just like a fat wreck devotee like like myself at least for in my former life certainly but he, every time i go there it's like fat records i heard tilt one night and uh, awesome. it, it's like the whole spectrum of the last 30 years or so so okay that's really cool that, dude. i have a list of questions i always try to make sure just so that i don't have like an existential meltdown in the middle of a conversation with somebody or just oh man you should let that. that you should consider letting that happen it might really inform your art <laughs> you know what I, I mean? actually really love that i love that you said that that the actually pod, the podcaster's journey <laughs> you're right as it were like in real time i don't know if you've ever read the book 10 Percent happier it's a self-help book but not really it's it's written by a guy who kind of hates self-help but he was an anchor on abc news and he had a panic attack on live tv and it's on youtube you can see it Oh, I, love I don't it. know why it just reminded me of that, but it's a great book. He goes down the rabbit hole of like a journalist. He goes into metaphysical stuff and examining it as an observer and a journalist. And he kind of finds what he likes. And the thesis of the book is that if you really learn to meditate and you learn to implement some sort of a mindful practice, it may not make you a hundred percent happier, but it could make you 10% happier. And therefore it might be worth it. Yeah. I'm going to send you that video of him having a panic attack I mean, on letter. If you have a pizza party with 10 people where everyone only gets one slice, it's still a pizza party. Oh, I like that. I yeah. might have to steal that. That's a good quote. I mean, you know. Yeah. Did you come up with that? <laughs> I just, you're, you're, I was just trying to put 10% in perspective for myself. <laughs> and I saw a pie and then that pie very quickly morphed into pizza right, right in my mind's yeah. eye. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a bummer if you get a medium sized pizza and it's only got eight, eight slices. I mean, it's one of those things like, do you, do you feel like having more friends or more, (laughs) a more decadent personal experience right then and there? I could, I could see a day where I'd go either way. Yeah. It's not, it's cool. But but pizza parties, you know, (laughs) you could explore that for sure. I was going to ask you, this isn't on my list of questions, but did you guys grow up on Fat Rack and Epitaph? And I mean, you mentioned the late nineties emo scene. You guys were a mixture of all those things. I feel like you were an amalgamation of Fat Rack, but also the Get Up Kids and Jimmy World. Yeah. So for my part, personally, I want to say the first, gosh, 
the first punk rock band that I really gravitated toward was Green Day. And I had direct exposure to them from the alternative rock radio station uh, in the D.C. area at the time, WHFS 99.1, I think it was uh, at that point. And so I became a very avid fan, like after hearing Longview one time on the radio. And my, I don't even know how I researched this. Like it was right at the dawning of the internet and I may have had access to an an early browser and discovered Lookout Records by searching for Green Day. Oh, cool. In like an altavista.com web browser in 1993. No, it was like 1993 or four. It was was the period when they were still touring as kind of like an intermediate sized band. They had developed enough of a following to have made Dookie, but it wasn't out yet. It was just starting to be spread around at alternative rock radio. And Longview was the first single. So anyway, I I went down the rabbit hole with them and learned everything I could and ordered their albums from Lookout Records, in addition to a a few other things that I thought just sounded cool, like Mr. T Experience. Yes. And um, what was another band? There's this band Squirt Gun from Indiana I liked that was on there, and a few others. I just kind of like went through and picked things that didn't sound like too scary, which in hindsight, I regret because I've, I've learned to really like a lot of the other heavy, crazy stuff like Neurosis, especially is a fantastic yeah. band. And they were really um, popular around that scene. Huge, area. huge, so big and just iconic. So they've informed so many bands like across the punk rock spectrum. So among my lookout records treasures that I got in, in late middle school, let's say like eighth grade, I was a Kerplunk t-shirt with the iconic graphic of the sunflower uh, mm-hmm. sprouting out of the pot and the girl with the gun standing there. Like she, she has like a, I don't know, like a 2000, a 22nd century uh, space zapper gun yeah, and a stun gun or whatever. And so I had that t-shirt and this guy who I had heard about from some of the my female classmates at lunchtime stopped me on the school bus to ask me about the shirt. And his name was Nick Bailey. And oh, wow. uh, he, so he, we made friends over that T-shirt, and he handed me his Walkman halfway through the school bus ride, and said, "Just listen to the first couple songs on this tape, and let me know what you think." And the first three tracks on there were um, "Crazy uh, Poway Kids" by Unwritten Law, mm-hmm. "United Cigar" by Good Riddance, and the song Take Away by Big Drill Car. And I think they're yeah. in that order too. And so that was the day I discovered uh, Fat Records proper. Okay. At this point, I also had a copy of No Effects, Punk and Drublick, which I had randomly found at Borders, the uh, like super fancy bookstore of the late 90s. Yeah, I think maybe I'd seen the name No Effects uh, in passing in my like studies of Green Day uh, as yeah. an avid 14-year-old. So yeah, that was how I discovered fat records and also how nick and i became super close friends we lived and we found that he had just moved to my neighborhood around the corner and so he was already uh his knowledge of the scene was already fairly well developed compared to mine because he had two uncles and grandparents in virginia beach and they were kind of um involved in the surf community there uh which which, uh, came along with sort of a 
a saturation of of music culture as well. And so he got to know a lot of cool local bands from Virginia Beach, as well as just punk bands and alternative rock bands and indie bands of that of that era. Um, so yeah, he continued to expose me to tons of cool music. So he would go several times a year, and we'd always plan like to save up a little bit of money and I'd send him with like $40 to go spend at the local like surf and uh, countercultural record store in Virginia Beach. I forget what it was called, but he'd always bring home like one or two things from there. I remember I got Millen Colin Life on a Plate that way mm, and uh, yeah. Homegrown, That's Business. Yeah. Their early album from there that way. These were all like uh, archaeological uh, artifacts recovered by Nick <laughs> on on his Indiana Jones missions to, to Virginia Beach, which was great. That's yeah, amazing. so so yeah, we were very 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 much into all things Fat Wreck, and uh, each time one of those Fat Music for Fat People compilations would come out, it was always just like a monumental. It was like a new era unfolded for us. Yeah, um, as music fans and also creatively, as we started to kind of like dig in on on guitar and try to do what we were hearing and do sure. it our own way. Yeah, no, you're right. A new era ushered in of just classic skate punk songs. Going back to Lookout, I think when I bought, because I was kind of like you, I discovered Dookie. I saw Basket Case one night, the video, and that's when it was just all things Green Day. I think that's kind of a common theme. That was the game changer record for a lot of people. Yeah, and. I remember buying Kerplunk and I'm pretty sure Kerplunk had Welcome to Paradise. Yeah, exactly. But it uh-huh. the tape had a little lookout catalog within it. Oh yeah. I think that was the first time I remember discovering lookout records and just now, those little catalogs that would come along on the CDs and you're like, oh, there's so many other bands here. And their artwork was always so cool. Yeah. I think it was all done or a lot of it was done by this guy, Aaron Comet Bus. He's just like a famous zine author of the NorCal scene. That's um, rad. And also like Did he close, do Dookie? Close, I the artwork there because I know they got a local artist to do that for them. Yeah, I'm not sure if that was him. I have yeah. to. I, my research is is uh, flawed right now, but but <laughs> no yeah, worries, they, I always love the the artwork they have. I should know. Kerplunk's um, just as iconic. I think you know. I actually still have so my good. Kerplunk T-shirt and I wear it proudly. When I'm working so out stuff sometimes, but yeah, I love that artwork. Very Lichtenstein meets pop art meets punk rock. There's something loose about it, but cool at the same time. And uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I remember I used to I used to draw when I was a kid. That was like my first venture into creativity, and I always wanted to draw the artwork that was on the front and back of Kerplunk, Dookie, and then even 1039. There was a couple of iconic little pop art images there's like a moon face that i think mike durant has tattooed on his arm indeed that's, that's on the back of 1039 yeah um, yeah 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 i always love that stuff that's cool okay so nick was fortunate to be around people who were involved in the scene and he latched onto some of those bands and then you guys met which is serendipitous yes fundamentally Me- meeting over a green day shirt that's pretty classic that's amazing and then Obviously, you guys started growing up listening to music, influenced what you guys were writing together. I wanted to start at a different area of your career arc, though. Talk uh, to me. And then we'll come back because yeah, we, yeah, we, sure. we've got to Tarantino it sometimes. But I'm pretty sure the first time I heard over it was on mp3.com. That was my first introduction to you guys. And you guys had a song on mp3.com and it was charting well. 
that was the first streaming site that I remember going to. Yeah. With Runner Runner, I definitely want to dig into over it. With Runner Runner, though, you performed at the Jimmy Kimmel show on the West Coast. I'm pretty sure that's where he's filmed and was filmed then. Yes. Live in LA. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then shortly after that, you guys performed on The Late Show with David Letterman. Being a kid who grew up on the East Coast and then making your way out to the West Coast to pursue your dreams, that had to be wild. Was it gratifying or hard to process just the culmination of all these experiences, even after over it, then being thrust into this situation where you're on a major label and you're playing on television? Yeah, you know, it certainly was all of the above. Challenging experience, a gratifying set of experiences, and plenty of opportunities to lose yourself to the astonishment that those feelings bring, which I both recommend and moreover recommend training to not avoid but overcome and control because what I ultimately think at this point in my life, I'm 40 years old now, is that the ride is crazier than we think no matter how wild it becomes. And this this applies to both the positives and the negatives and the ambitions and the, uh, the troubles of life. Mm-hmm. So, especially if you want a, a unique and special experience in your life while you have the chance, you uh, you owe it to yourself to try and stay calm and not be bewildered by what happens. Yeah, were you though? You said, no, you said it was <laughs> no, oh, I wasn't. I was not calm. I was really excited. <laughs> <laughs> I would have um, a hard time. Just, I think trying to put myself in your shoes, looking at all these cameras and then audience to your right. And you're sort of playing for the cameras and not necessarily the people on your right. I mean, not a Jimmy Kimmel, obviously. I'm sure that was a different experience. That's probably one of the better, more realistic ways to play on television. With our our live TV appearances, we were pretty fortunate in that even with the uh, the Ed Sullivan Theater, Dave Letterman show, I think they allowed, they had the, the seated audience in the theater, which is just kind of cool in its own weird way if you just get past mm-hmm. the weirdness of it. Uh, sure. But I think they allowed a small group to like come up front and kind of just be, I don't know, represent the feeling of a, a real show crowd a little bit more. They weren't like going nuts yeah. or anything, but they were there. They were there with us. Cool. And I think we tried to just sort of put ourselves in that zone as much as possible because we were doing a lot of strange performances at, you know, the crack of dawn in a newsroom uh, Mm -hmm. or or a radio studio. And like the essence of it was that like it was potentially an audience of thousands, you know, Mm -hmm. or tens of thousands on the in the right market. So we tried to just, I guess, visualize all those people. Yeah. And be present with them like it was a real show. Okay. And you guys had Um, plenty of practice by then too. So that probably helped a little bit. Like somebody's first record and then all of a sudden they're on TV. You guys had been grinding it out for over a decade by that point. Yeah. It's more than just imagining it. And, And that's the other thing. If you take the ride and let it inspire you, it gives your, it informs your ambition itself. So you know, at some point we saw what was possible. We saw our friends' bands succeeding at this level and the next level. And we realized that in order to be successful, we had to redefine our own ambition and always, you know, reset the goalpost every time something cool happened for us because of the hard work. 
Yeah. That's cool. I actually really like what you just said about letting it inform your ambition. Yeah. That, that almost leads me to believe that you weren't cynical about it. You were actually having a good time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the cynicism, if it ever came, came from just wondering if it was all what it was all for. Um, yeah. Because it was hard. It's it's hard to go out and just like travel and play a lot of shows and play for no people a lot of the time and go through the process of realizing that when you do play for one person who cares the next time they'll return with three friends and that this is this is really what it's all about building slowly and and incrementally and earnestly and not really fearing that it's all for naught because you know it's if things go terribly uh, at least you can say you enjoyed yourself while they were happening i guess but they're not going to go terribly if you work really hard and that's that's what happened for us like we we had a lot of great opportunities because we were willing to go out there and uh, keep trying I think yeah yeah yeah, I love that I think that's great I think that's that's kind of the place that I've reached a little bit later in life I think I was that cynical person during the process back then kind of lamenting what is this all for and is it leading to something because when you're in the middle of it it's difficult because you can't see the future obviously so there's this one guy, like he's got a podcast, but he's said a few things that I've really latched onto. And he always says that the work is guaranteed, but the success is not. So you might as well enjoy the work. <laughs> I like that. That's nice and practical. But I also feel like as a, uh, as a personal trainer, you can see how physical fitness is like a really great metaphor for what I'm talking about. And like the neuroplasticity that comes with it and that you need for it because... I don't know, as someone who doesn't work out a ton, but really enjoys physical fitness, uh, especially like riding my bicycle and for distances and stuff, the hardest part of physical fitness is just overcoming that hurdle of of inertia of like, eh, do I have to do it today? Like what yeah. happens if I don't, it's going to be boring, whatever the sense is that's keeping you from moving forward. But then once you... Once you do it, you find borderline instant gratification in it, I think. Yeah. And then and then what happens is that the the sense of that's holding you back, I think, is is degraded. And this is a totally mental thing. You know, oh, like mental like a mental whatever that biophysical brain barrier is. Yeah. Yeah. And you're triumphing against that adversity. Like you said, it's delayed gratification into the gratification. That's the hard part, right? You're trying not to just sit on the couch all day. You're trying to basically jump that one little hurdle and yeah. not to be disparaging of sitting on the couch all day. Sometimes that's necessary, no, no, no. Too, but, that's... but you're, you're absolutely right. That was, I think the metaphor that I learned when I started engaging in physical activity, whatever it may be, whether it was more cardiovascular or something that's slightly uncomfortable, but you do get that sense of a daily win and that sense of accomplishment afterwards. That was definitely a powerful metaphor. And I think when I was going through that, that's when I discovered indirectly and then directly just reading up on it, the concept of neuroplasticity and how we can change our state a little bit if we're intentional and aware. Yeah. That's the rub, right? That's the game that we're all trying to play, I think. And for sure. Several games, but yeah. You just gave me you just gave me an idea. Let me see if I can retrace it. It was something like it's not about denying yourself the comforts of your life, like sitting on the couch or whatever it is, moment to moment. 
in moderation if these things are at all harmful, which, you know, let's face it, all things are harmful at a certain concentration. Yep. Poison's in the dose, right? Yeah. But the more times you're willing to make yourself uncomfortable, the broader your sense of possibility becomes mentally. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And more, more light bulbs in your imagination. Yeah. I love that. And then more hurdles that come along with them to crawl over. <laughs> Like a like yeah, a lazy like a lazy thing. <laughs> it's continual, right? Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying about the ride of life. That's why uh equilibrium is so important, especially when it's like, oh my god, these dazzling realities may come to pass. And also the dazzling and stunning disappointment of them being fleeting or not being mm. what I thought they were, would were not being what I thought they would be. It's bigger than we can ever imagine, and that's why we need to calmly take the ride and stay in control so we can see what we want and be more, it sounds weird to say, but hands-on with what we want from life. Yeah, and just being more present in the moment. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's really good, man. This is good stuff. Did you, this is kind of a random question. Hit me. You seem like a thoughtful person. You seem very aware and intentional. I even thought this back in the day when I would listen to Overt songs and I read some of the lyrics. Do you read about Buddhism or Eastern philosophy or Eastern religion or even Stoic philosophy? I am new to Eastern philosophy, but I am a fan. Okay. Yeah. I'll ask you, which a translation of, um, of the Tao Te Ching do you recommend if you're a student of Buddhism. This is the moment, unfortunately, where I lost Peter for a moment, but he came right back and we pick right back up with our conversation. Cool. Where are you at? Are you at your studio or? No, I'm at home. I'm oh, in cool. my, uh, I mean, it's kind of my studio. It's, it's my, the second bedroom in my, uh, me and my wife's apartment. Cool. And uh, your fortress have, of solitude. Sort of, sort of. <laughs> There's like guitars and things in here for sure. Cool. That's rad, man. I was rambling. Maybe that was a sign. <laughs> I was talking about Stoic philosophy. I don't know how much you caught, but... Oh, I thought you were asking about Buddhism. I, I... Oh, yeah. Right, no, when I I lost originally. You, right when I lost you, I was asking if you would recommend a translation of the Tao Te Ching because I haven't read it and I... Oh, yeah. Well, it's great yeah. you mentioned that. That's something I need to look into as well. There are a couple of suggestions that I've heard Tim Ferriss give because he's a really big fan of the Tao Te Ching. Yeah. He's mentioned it a lot on his podcast. I'm a big fan of his books and his work and stuff, but I'll look that up. And if I, I know, find it, the, I'll um, know the fantasy author Ursula K. Le Guin did one, and I don't know like what what the spin is on that. But that's that has intrigued me. But yeah, in I, general, I love love reading about anything, so philosophy okay. included. Red, awesome man. I mentioned Stoic philosophy. I've read a bunch of Ryan Holiday's work, and he's kind of a soft introduction to Stoic philosophy. But he translates it or transmutes it into modern times and how we can cool. gather information from it and gather these really foundational concepts and tactics and things. So I like his stuff quite a bit. He and Tim Ferriss are very similar, and they've been on each other's shows and things before. But I just there was something I think almost even today I was going through some old over it lyrics from timing yeah. is everything and silver yeah. strand and even step outside yourself and some of the concepts therein maybe it was just the way i was interpreting it probably because of who i am now but there seemed like some metaphysical concepts and things and certainly break yeah. us all down we're all just atoms colliding into one another and a lot uh, of look, looking outward to the stars looking beyond 
ourselves and maybe you were looking beyond yourself at that point and I asking think this questions. is uh this is certainly attributable to my experience just before leaving college my sophomore year at St. John's College in Annapolis we read a lot of Aristotelian philosophy and mm -hmm. accompanying that was mathematical study of astronomers of the ancient Greek astronomers mm -hmm. uh, Ptolemy and uh, well leading up to Copernicus and the Renaissance so yeah that's that definitely affected my my lyrical process I guess yeah um, that's awesome man that's yeah, really cool for sure and I don't know I just like the themes baked therein you know it's kind of it's cool. It's kind of otherworldly. And I think it could be interpreted a lot of different ways. That's a great thing about lyrics in general, right? Yeah, that that's always been my favorite thing about songs is that the really potent ones give you a really acute feelings um, mm -hmm. that when you think about them can be played out in a lot of different stories. I think that's probably why a lot of different people relate to them. Absolutely. I remember so. we were listening to Timing is Everything a ton on tour. It was cool that we had the opportunity to play with you guys because we were genuine fans at the same oh, time. Man. Thank you. Yeah, of course, man. And it's been really fun just in preparation talking to you. I have uh, your song sprinkled in in mixes that I have that I always kind of have in the background, but it was really fun to revisit those records in totality. And I have these memories, these feelings associated with timing is everything driving up and down the coast in California, as I'm sure you do too, maybe to not your record, but other records. And the first time you guys got to California, that's what it reminds me of. When I hear wrong way, I think about being on the 101 and you know the golden coast and leaving home to specifically go to California to play shows. It definitely has that feeling associated with it. What was it like the first time you guys made it out to California? Because that was kind of like the pinnacle then. Yeah. Well, first off, what a beautiful thing to have said, Kyle. That's nice. <laughs> of course, man. Really nice. Really, really, really nice. Hey, the first thing that springs to my mind, I don't, I don't, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember what we were listening to, but I have a feeling it was the element of Sonic Defiance, if that's the name of it, the the uh, strung out yeah. EP or album from around 2002-ish. I think that's what we were listening to. And we cruised into, we were playing, or we had over it had a concert at the Mira Mesa Epicenter mm -hmm. in, um, I think it was in, in uh, Poway, California. Mm-hmm. Like one of the, the suburbs or like parts of sections of San Diego. It was yeah. with the band Counterfeit, all our label mates on Negative Progression in Boston at that time. And they were such a cool band too. And we we went immediately to the ocean and uh, Nick was going to try to surf like right away. And so I <laughs> ran, ran, ran up to the ocean and ran into the ocean to only to discover that it was frigid. Yeah. Frigid, frosty, cold. And uh, that was like a revelation to me. Wow, the Pacific Ocean <laughs> is cold. What month was it? This was June or something. Aug August. It was like wow, the, you know, by the peak of summer. But it was cold and beautiful, stunningly beautiful. But yeah, I think we were listening to "Strung Out." That's awesome. That's yeah. great. Good times. And then, how quickly did you guys discover In and Out? We, I think <laughs> we, I think we had In and Out even before that. Okay, in because, Vegas or something, or yes, yeah, I believe my first In and Out experience was in Vegas. Okay, prior to this, I think ours was too. Actually, on the way to the West Coast, we stopped in Vegas. 
but I'm also almost positive we had in and out that same day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's a staple. Have to. It was cheap too. That was the great thing. You know, I forget. <laughs> I revisit yeah. it now and I'm like, oh, yeah. And I know why we ate this all the time because it was so cheap. It's still yeah, cheap. It's cool. You know, I, while I appreciate the um, a mythological place in and out holds for, for American tourists, I, I've <laughs> always just kind of been a Wendy's guy. Okay. <laughs> Wendy's may be superior. I mean, that's definitely what we eat here in the Midwest, too. You know. That's what I ate in, in high school, just every day, it seems. Right on. Well, as a personal trainer, you can make your own <laughs> recommendations about Wendy's and people's lives. But I, you know, In and Out's cool. Wendy's is cool. You know, this is a really weird segue, but we're just going to go there, Peter. Um, Please do. You know, it's so funny when I have clients and a lot of times I try to be real with people. I have a lot of people that travel for work and stuff like that. And so I, over the years, have made guides like cheat sheets for fast food places if you're in a pinch and it's the only available option at 1030 at night or something. And Wendy's was always on there because they used to serve this grilled chicken wrap that I thought was a pretty good, healthy-ish item from a fast food joint. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And then I found out like two days ago, they don't serve it anymore. That's that's ironic and coincidental because <laughs> I was going to mention that we always really enjoyed the uh, seven layer burrito from Taco Bell. Yep. The uh, vegetarian item, which they have recently discontinued as well. <sighs> what are they I know. Doing? They're not helping America's case here a little bit, you know? I guess not, but <sighs> I don't know. What's your take on the uh, on the new vegetarian meats, the Beyond Meats, possible burgers and stuff? A lot of it I like. There's varying opinions in the health community as there are with almost anything. I try to be as realistic with people as possible because there are some people out there, it may be their only option, especially here in the Midwest where meat is ubiquitous and it's very difficult to find lots of healthy-ish vegan and vegetarian options. I like the way it tastes personally. Sometimes we'll do the Beyond Meat burger patties and sometimes we'll, we'll even do some of their other products and things. And I was vegetarian for about a year and a half. So I have an extensive history with a lot of the vegetarian meat options that are available. Yeah. But you know, it's processed food. So I think some people are a little bit more anti-processed food. I think in you know, realistic terms, it's going to be a part of our diets because there are lots of things that are processed. Almost everything is processed to a certain right. extent. Right. So I think it's kind of like what we were saying earlier, the poisons in the dose, right? If you're eating processed <laughs> food, nice. <laughs> if you're if you're consuming processed food only exclusively, that may come back to bite you and may not necessarily make you feel all that great from a micronutrient standpoint, from a vitamin and mineral outlook, but I think yeah. within the context of a broad, healthy diet, I think it's perfectly fine to have a meatless Monday and eat a Beyond Burger occasionally, especially if you're vegetarian in the Midwest. I mean, it might be your only option and it's a good one. Yeah. You know, I'm a fan. I am both an omnivore and have enjoyed the Beyond and Impossible Burgers. Yeah. But my, my wife, who's vegetarian, cannot eat them because they so closely resemble meat Mm -hmm. the experience is just too authentic for her it grosses her out that's fair which is that as well (laughs) yeah and you got married a couple years ago right i did 2019 congratulations man that's awesome cool thanks a lot Uh, yeah i just happened to think i saw some photos on your facebook page 
of the wedding. I think I was looking to see if we spoke on Instagram or Facebook. It's always one or the other, it seems, but right, right. Yeah, that, that's really cool, man. Shifting gears a little bit from vegetarian options, but that's cool. It's cool that. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. Forgive me for a uh, digression. Oh, no. Not at all, man. This is great. I love talking about a breadth of topics when it comes to this stuff. That's kind of the cool thing because there's so yeah. many universal themes. So you guys went to California. You immediately went to the ocean. That's awesome. So this was probably, was it about 2001, 2002 when that occurred when you first got out there? This was, I think this was 2002. Yeah, okay. So like late summer of 2002. It was after. You going out there to record with Cameron Webb? No, well. we were on we were on tour. We had just we had finished doing some some warp tour dates. Mm-hmm. It was our first time doing that as well. I'm like 99% sure it was the the run of shows where we met staring back our future label mates. Yeah. The records we met them at the Nile Theater, I believe it was called in Mesa, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Jimmy World's hometown. Yeah. And cool. then we did it like a few weeks of shows with them and they kind of they were our introduction to uh to Southern California. Rad. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Another great classic band. I have a lot of good memories playing with them and listening to that record. It seemed like those two records came out pretty close to one another. I don't think it was on the same date, but your record timing is everything. And then staring back's record on. Yeah. That's what it was called. Cameron Webb. When did you guys record timing is everything? Was that in 2002 or maybe the tail end of 2001? I think that was, I believe, spring of 2001. Oh, wow. Okay. Like May or so. Gosh, I think that's right. I'm not 100% sure. I think that's correct, though. Like spring of 2001. Yeah, it gets a little fuzzy around that time, right? It sure does. It gets quite (laughs) fuzzy sometimes. Yeah, but we we came out here to make that with Cameron at a studio in Ojai, which I don't believe is there any longer called Audio International. Really cool studio. Yeah. And I'm sure that was fun. Was he your first? Yeah. You know, did you guys have a producer for the previous records or kind of, but it was always just like the, the engineer whose place it was. Yeah. So with Cameron, it was a little bit more of like this external creative force coming in and and collaborating with us a little bit more, but also not really. Cameron's like a very hands-off, like just keep keep everyone in the band in the zone so that they don't think about the technical aspects and just perform the best that they at the peak of their ability. Okay. Uh, so would you say he's more of an engineer and less of a producer? Or he can wear both hats? He's both, but Cameron I don't I don't think would call himself a songwriter. Whereas I, you know, I would argue that Cameron gives indispensable songwriting input and certainly arrangement input. The the biggest lesson we learned from Cameron was the incorporating of an outside voice in the pre-production process, which basically just boiled down to having a a guy at band practice to be like, what's up with this part? Or like, what are you guys doing here? I'm confused. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of like an audience member to just uh, give you give you that perspective so you can work on your your work in translation. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also Cameron showed up where the first time I ever met him, we, we were rehearsing at the, uh, this is at the top of this trip, actually. He, we, we rehearsed for like three days with him. When I talk about pre-production, it was a very accelerated process. We had just sure. been writing and, and kind of recording on four track and sending him ideas. And he'd be like, oh yeah, that's good enough to work with. Yeah, that's good enough to work with. Yeah, sure. We can tweak that. And that that was basically the whole writing process for the timing is everything songs, which I don't even remember now how long it took, but it was, you know, it was a little while. Yeah. Um, 
Cool. But uh, he he showed up. We were at the at this like warehouse uh, rehearsal space place where the office for Lobster Records was, and also where Nerf Herder, the band on uh, on uh, on Honest Dons, uh, rehearsed as well. And um, cool. He walked up wearing uh, an old big drill car hoodie from like 1989 or something. And I just immediately fell in love with him. But we, we had already <laughs> agreed to work with him because he made the, the park record, um, No Signal, oh, yeah. and, and the others too. And we just felt like those sounded really cool. And um, yeah, yeah. And we knew we were going to get to go to a really cool studio and work with great gear. So we just thought, hell, yeah, we'll take your advice, Steve, and work with this guy. This is fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those park records, definitely an underrated band, but man, yeah, I love but the, those for records. those, for those in the know, it's just like a no brainer. Like, yeah, park, of yeah. course they're, they're so good. They were a bit of a musician's band. I remember seeing the starting line for the first time and he was wearing That's a right. shirt and somebody from the crowd said, nice shirt. And he's like, yeah, have you heard? He was like literally having a conversation with the kid in the front row. He was like, have you heard park? You need to check him out if you haven't heard him yet. And I thought, okay, yeah. Park's like a musician's band park. I met yellow card through park. That's how I met those guys. Cause we were booking shows for park in the Midwest. Makes and, sense. Yeah. And they just happened to, this is right at the end of 2001 and yellow card they were being thrown on that tour last minute, but no, I'm sure that was exciting to be working with this producer and you've worked with him since then, right? Yeah, I have. I have. He mixed every record over it did subsequently. Yeah. I've been part of his gang vocal crew for the last, man, five Pennywise albums or something, which has just been a tremendous honor and also just ridiculous. Like, who gets to do that? That's um, awesome. And what else have I done with Cameron? He produced a record for our friends, uh, Stolier Woman, who were mm-hmm. uh, a Camarillo area, Thousand Oaks area band. Yeah, and, we were good um, friends with them. We played with them. Yeah, that's right. You know them super well. I f- feel like we may have even stayed at your house together with them yeah, at some that's, point. Yeah, um, that's very possible. Yeah. Also, thanks for the awesome hospitality over the year, years. Of course. Um, Absolutely, yeah. man. Yeah, but uh, we I helped work on that with him. Some of their some of their pre production process, just a few things here and there. I think the last really cool project I did with Kim was uh, coming in to just pitch some background vocal ideas on the last Alkaline Trio record, which was out I think in two thousand years ago, seventeen right? maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I was gonna ask you about that because for some reason, yeah, maybe you had commented on a Matt picture or something and i saw that and i thought oh okay that's well, right yeah maybe that's you worked on, with cameron webb on that i did i t- came into the studio and just spent a day like a morning with cameron and we had lunch and just sang some ideas and i think one or two of the songs they kept stuff on i um, love that record it's great yeah. really as far good. as alkaline trio goes i think that's a great record for where they are in their career it's uh yeah it's it's like really well written and super authentic to them and uh it was really well made i saw it firsthand so it's cool very cool cool awesome matt skiba Um, has and um and dan both have like such cool guitars oh yeah the the fenders yeah matt has some real like super custom frankensteiny like kind of basic uh jaguars and like offset body guitars they're all yeah. just like beasts beast yeah. guitars. he posts um, them periodically and i'm like oh man those are rad and he's probably been having fun 
you know, having yeah. every resource available, being in Blink-182, being able to really mod out his guitars and his gear and stuff. Yeah. He's an artist too. So he's probably um, having fun just customizing everything. Gosh, maybe I shouldn't confess this now, but I want to apologize, Matt, because a little bird encouraged me to do this in the studio, but the lyrics for Blackbird were, I'm remembering this now, right in front of me on the music stand, which was obscured by like this, this nice, like Palo Santo burning tray. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had like the incense and stuff. And it was like someone's sacred shit, obviously. But I had mm-hmm. to move it ever so slightly off to the side to see the lyrics. And I felt like it was a worthy sacrifice to get something cool <laughs> for the song. So I did that. And I honor you, Matt Skiba, and you're the man. So thank you. Absolutely, man. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Okay. So I've got a random question. Did you meet a lot of those guys, a lot of legends on Warp Tour? Because I have a difficult time sort of piecing Warp Tour together. Warp Tour was such a whirlwind and I think it was so difficult and arduous and thrilling all at the same time doing yeah. it in a van. And I know you guys did it in a van as well. Yeah. Did you ever come into contact with those people back then? And do you remember any of those experiences? Because I don't really have a ton. Um, let's see. Probably not from the van days, apart from bands whom we were already friends with like uh, newfound glory was always really kind to us yeah i do and remember them being really nice dudes and, but, we, but, but the same thing like we were working so rigorously like it was just it was like a you know like getting a graduate degree or something like just yeah just very, you had to schedule your rests very in a very <laughs> granular fashion to make sure you could survive i had plenty of like awesome brushes with with super iconic people when by the time we were on on a bus and like i could make an appearance at catering at 7 a.m to get coffee if i wanted to yeah um you know like passing tim armstrong the creamer and him saying good morning to you stuff like that (laughs) i'm trying to think of a cool example and that's that's the best i i have that's Um, pretty damn cool man yeah for sure like you know I was getting coffee with Tim from Rancid today on Up <laughs> Ivy. No big, right? Yeah. I just remember the first time we rolled up to the Kansas City Warp Tour in 2002. I was 18. We had no idea where to even go. We were supposed to find the production office. And I get out of the van and nearly get hit by Fat Mike on one of those little motorized scooters. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, uh, okay. That's yeah, that's right. We're this work tour. <laughs> I don't know where I'm at, but this is pretty amazing. But when we were doing it, I don't remember ever running into Matt Skiba or Dan or Derek. I don't remember running into Joey Cape or any of those guys really. I, I'm sure they were all just kind of hidden in their in their buses trying to maintain totally you know, coolage, yeah, but yeah, just geez, we were just trying to survive. The one the one person you could always run into outside of the bus was Davey Havoc because he yeah. would set up his his like portable gym area in a little <laughs> tent right outside of their bus. So if it was oriented in the right direction, you would he'd be fully on display and accessible for anyone passing by. Oh man, uh, that's so cool. <laughs> friendly too. Yeah. yeah. It's totally cool. Yeah. Warp Tour is such a strange, unique, magical thing, but I'm glad I got to experience I mean, it. For anyone you see who is not like amazingly busy, unless you understand the context of being amazingly busy yourself, they're really accessible because everyone is like just trying to keep cool and 
and uh, relax at summer camp. And that really is the vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There was one other time where we, I remember Tony Sly, we were playing on a tiny stage. It was 2002 because I'm pretty sure No Use did the whole thing that year. Yeah, and I remember what, that was the first time I saw No Use was that summer. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was such a crazy time. Great mm-hmm. year. But I remember we were playing and we were covering Linoleum by NoFX. And I remember Tony Sly, he walked by and he just happened to be walking somewhere. He kind of side-eyed, looked over at us. <laughs> and I immediately, I was able to pick him out of the crowd and he stopped for just like a second. And then he just turned and kept walking. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. It's just like my one Tony Sly moment, but yeah, great times. Shifting forward a little bit, because I feel like we could talk about that era for hours, but when was the first time you met Mike Green? I met Mike Green outside iMusic Cast in Oakland, California. Or was it? No, but I was in Berkeley, I think, on Telegraph, the Bay Area venue iMusic Cast. We were opening for the matches there. This was, whew, I think it was 2004. Four. Okay. Was it 2004? Maybe it was 2003. Could have been. Not, it was not long after we moved to... Man, I'm getting mixed up right now. There's some cool connections here though, Peter. The fact yes. that you're on Telegraph Avenue in the Bay Area watching an up and coming band. Yes. You know, and you 10 years prior to that, you met one of your best friends who you connected through with a Green Day t-shirt, which may have been the thing that led you to Telegraph Avenue. And certainly, I was certainly looking, uh, I was keeping one eye open all the time on Telegraph (laughs) Avenue in case I should see a member of Green Day, which I never did. Someday. Yes. Yeah. I think it's coming. (laughs) Billy Joe just performed at the Golden Bull on on his birthday. I think it was. Oh, cool. Yeah. In Oakland. It's a, I've never been, but it's supposed to be a really cool bar and I don't know if he owns it or just works there sometimes, but Jason Bebout, the singer of Sam I Am is, is involved with the golden bull somehow and it seems cool. like a really cool spot if you're ever in oakland yeah i'm glad you told me because this is exactly where i want to go yeah well cool so you met mike green at a matches show that makes sense he yep. those were kind of his what's the phrase his claim to fame i remember he sent us a reel and it had a bunch of early matches songs on it nice yeah i mean i was certainly starstruck when he revealed his identity to me Um, but almost the very next thing he said was, you know, I really like some of the songs on timing is everything I'd be, I'd really like to work with over it as well. And I'm moving to a warehouse in LA to try and pursue this goal. What do you think? And I was like, yeah, let's figure out how to make this happen for sure. And, um, that's basically what we continued to do. Okay. And then you guys probably furthered talks. You knew you were going to do another record, Silver Strand. We had a couple of songs already. Sorry, I'm looking. I think this must have been 2004. Okay. Because you guys did the split, the three-way split on TakeOver before. Exactly. And that was the first project that we worked on with Mike Okay, at the original warehouse. And then uh, Silver Strand followed very quickly thereafter. And that was our last last, um, creative project with Lobster. And uh, Steve very graciously allowed us like a more generous portion of creative control to like do that record with Mike and just work in the warehouse on it. And uh, in general, overall, it was a much more kind of rugged DIY punk rock experience of making a record. But we got to spend a lot more time on pre-production and writing a bunch of songs and trying to just spend time making the project a, a more creative experience. Yeah, absolutely. cool. And then we mixed it with Cameron at the end of the day, which was great. Yeah. And sonically, it still sounds great. 
I really enjoy both of those records, Silver Strand and Step Outside Yourself. I could tell then that you guys definitely had some time to spend on it because I always felt like your band, specifically on Silver Strand and Step Outside Yourself, you guys were fearless with some of your arrangements and some of your chord progressions. I'd love to hear you speak about this, but Mike Green seems like an adventurous producer. He enjoys trying lots of different sounds and I know he's a guitar player, so he probably was able to have fun with different pedals and different effects and things. Yeah. Uh, Well, let me begin by saying that Mike Green is no mere guitar player. He's like an Olympian god of a guitar player. Like he he's inhuman, I would even say, as That's a guitar awesome. player. Yeah. I've heard that. Um he's super technical and incredible like his the mental arithmetic and mathematics that are going on with that person are uncanny. So yeah, I loved playing guitar with him once I got past the fact that I suck at guitar and I could only learn <laughs> from him and I realized that that was a tremendous gift. Yeah, that was cool. But yeah, that's, that is ex- exactly what... It's the same thing that attracted me to his work with the matches and everything the matches did afterward and con- mm-hmm. continued to do and bring with their songwriting. And also what I, what I really hoped to nurture in in over it and and all of us creatively that sense of fearlessness you described and it's twofold it's one being open to seeing the band's metamorphosis and realizing that the essence of the band that makes it recognizable as the band is to be tested if you really want to enjoy being in a band for the long haul because you don't want to just every time you feel that voice of doubt holding you back from trying something different, a groove that feels a certain way, a melody that runs a certain direction because it's not you. That to me at least, and I think for all of us became a signpost that yeah, we need to try it because mm-hmm. like that's that's how to grow. That's how to expand what we what we have to to show people. That's the indicator. Because, yeah, because we didn't we we wanted the band to sound a certain way, but we definitely didn't want it to just be a two-dimensional thing. Mm-hmm. And Mike really helped us do that. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Was, I, it, I really enjoy his production. Even and now. We had also, we had also never um, really, like I was talking about songwriting with Cameron before and Cameron would never take credit for collaborating on a song. I don't, I mean, he might at a certain threshold, but I don't know what that threshold is. With Mike Green, we were actively um, co-writing songs and finishing songs together or like accepting an idea that he had started and making it our own. So it was a really, it was a new open doorway creatively for us in, a, in many, many ways. Yeah. And what an unbelievable level of trust you would have to have in him in order to do that, right? To basically accept him as another member of the band for a period of time and yeah. allow him input like that. I just think that's really, you have to be brave. Yeah. And I mean, let's face it. I feel like he had to be, if we had to be brave, he had to be brave for X because he was dealing with each of us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. I can't imagine and the, being a and the gestalt, the, the gestalt, the force that we comprise together, which is greater than us individually as parts. It was, you know, the hardest thing about being a producer and, and being a, a person who who works in the recording world now is just is um the subtle psychology of it all and managing everyone's egos, expectations and, and good vibrations that they can work well. Almost like the band psychologist. Right. 
or the therapist or just the life coach guiding Cam- you in the right direction. Cameron Webb is a master of that. Mike Green is okay at that, but he makes up in spades for his uh, any shortcomings with that guitar playing I talked about earlier. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I remember I was in another band well after game time called the American life. And we were right. We were really lucky because we went on tour in Japan, a spur of the moment fluke thing, but we were I remember this. this. Okay, cool. Yeah. And we went out there with a band called artist versus poet. And yeah. we had a loose connection with them because they did a record with the same people that did the American life's EP just previous to that. But they did half the record with Mike Green and they were just singing his praises. They were really emphatic that if we were to ever record anything else, we should definitely try to work with Mike Green. Mm-hmm. They were just huge fans of him. And I remember, obviously, I knew who he was just based on what he had done previous with your two records and everything. And he's working with Kyle Black now. I feel like they collaborate. I know they're their own entity, but I know well, they work Kyle- on records. Kyle worked as his A2, his assistant engineer for, uh, I think, a few years. And okay. Kyle now has his own place in Van Nuys and is is just crushing it in his own right. His stuff sounds amazing. Like those State Champs records he, yeah. he does. He's produced, I think, one or two albums for Strung Out now as well. Yeah, um, so cool. Yeah, just killing it. Yeah, I'm sure you guys play with Neural quite a bit, right? We may Neural was, even play together. And Neural was, uh, I met Neural actually... The guys from Neural, the same day I met Sean Harris and the matches. Wow. At the Cobalt Cafe in Canoga Park. This was, gosh, I feel like this had to have been the maybe February of 2003, like right when we moved here. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we played with them at the Cobalt Cafe once. So that must have been like a local venue for them. Yeah. That was actually the first band that Game Time played with on the West Coast. It was Neural. That was our other tie to Mike Green, actually, was through Neural. He had been working with them in, in, uh, his, at his new Hollywood digs when he first moved here. Cool. Yeah, but Jeez. Kyle's a really great dude and uh, super talented. And honestly, like if I had a, a punk rock project to record, I would probably go do it with him. His stuff sounds amazing. I agree. His work with Strung Out, you mentioned that record sounds amazing. I really dig the Cameron Webb record that they just did a couple years ago, too. Yeah. But you're right. His... Sonically, just it sounds amazing. Drums, guitars, vocals. He's a good producer. He really is. I thought I remembered reading an article or a, an interview with you where you were talking about Danny Elfman. Are you a fan of Danny Elfman or scores yeah. and films yeah, yeah. and things? Definitely. Okay. Um, Do you think that influenced some of the later over it stuff? Some of the chord progressions and melodies um, and things? I think that comes from the same trail of influence as the Mike Green touch. And uh, specifically because right around the time we met Mike, we were asked very randomly to contribute a song for an Oingo Boingo tribute compilation. Okay. I remember this. um, Yeah. yeah. This is actually how I really discovered Oingo Boingo. Like I'd heard the band's name and read their name and seen it all around my whole life and loved Danny Elfman's score work as a child of the 80s. But yeah. So Mike Green was like, you guys need to do this song. It's called Stay. Go listen to it. Go learn it. Tell me what you think. And so we loved it and we learned it and we played it. So if you find, I don't know where you could hear this. I'm not sure I haven't thought about it in years. But if you find the and the matches were on this compilation as well. They did, um, I think they did Dead Man's Party, actually. Cool. Which was great. Very true to the original, just like punked up a little bit, just total mm. matches style. But on our version of of Stay, uh, I think only Mike Green could play the 
the main guitar figure really well. <laughs> so we were like, oh man, you just do it. Just like you're really just in the band on this one. You should do it. We love how that sounds. Your way, go. That's and awesome. So he, so he did that. Uh, I think he <laughs> even did some vocals on it as well. Very cool. Fun times. So yeah, yeah I love, so love and I think I think Mike was a big fan. So yeah, that like kind of modal melodic chord work and really interesting lead guitar work is uh maybe originates a little bit from danny elfman and mike okay yeah cool he also worked a lot with the lost original guitar player of third eye blind okay um i think the guy's name is orion 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 whatever but he's the this guy's amazing like on the first third eye blind album it's mm-hmm. like all the really cool lead guitar stuff yeah i love that stuff and I think he was also a, a pretty a central songwriter in that on that record as well. Cool. There's some iconic yeah. guitar melodies on that first Third Eye Blind record. Yeah, I can say that again. Them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like a lot of bands try to mimic that today. They listen to those old Third Eye Blind records and they're trying to mimic some of those melodies in particular. Yeah, interesting. Because I, I feel like a lot I... of the, the pop rock of today or even pop punk of today it kind of meanders into 90s a little bit. Interesting. That quirk. I hear it sometimes when I hear bands like Seaway and The Main. And I really like that band Seaway. I do too. Yeah. They're so good. Yeah. And you can tell they're heavily influenced by Third Eye Blind. Even his voice, his inflection reminds me of Stephen Yeah. That's another Kyle Black thing, isn't it? Seaway? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, That's that's true. I forgot. They're really freaking good. I think yeah. that band really, I, I listened to that and was like, wow, I'm jealous of this. This is, this is really good. <laughs> yeah, no, it is good for sure. There's definitely a lot of really um, good tunes. I feel like Nick may have written some stuff with them as well. Nick oh, cool. From over it and Runner Runner. I, don't quote me on that, but it's probably true. Yeah, he's doing a lot of co-writes these days, right? Him he and Ryan. Is. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah, cool. They've been he just successful. had a lot of success. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of success with the new Machine Gun Kelly. I think he had a hand in a couple of those songs, right? Yeah. Yep, and also the the main collaborator there, as far as I can tell, is Nick Long, who was uh, a member. Back. Yep, that's right. That's incredible. I mean, I put that connection together maybe a couple months ago. I followed yeah, him. He, you know, he was always so talented. Like it, wherever he appeared, it was no surprise to me that he's just been killing it. And Ryan really, really deserves too. it. Yep. Ryan, Ryan, and uh, Ryan and Ryan's new electronic project is really cool. Yeah, I actually don't know how to pronounce that. Is it Jedha? Is it Jedha? Is it is it like Jedi? <laughs> is it related to? Is it Star Wars or adjacent? It is. Ryan yeah, Keith? it is. It's so funny you mentioned that too because I was literally as you were saying it, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was I want to say it, but I also don't want to botch it. I believe it's Jedha. I'll go and, ahead just because I'm an avid fan. It's freaking awesome. And yeah, I, love I, really, them. I love them both like brothers. So sorry I didn't ask, guys. Oh, yeah. Have. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, I'm sure they, they wouldn't fault you. It's brand new. I mean, they just announced it, I think, a week and a half ago. So yeah, like, super talented dude. Ryan is. I mean, they both are Yeah, incredibly talented. But I believe it's in one of the prequels. They mentioned something about Jetta being important or significant in some capacity. I forget. Okay, what, so it's though. the name. It's the name of a mysterious character. Something, yeah, okay. or even like an element. It's like a Jedi element of some type. But oh, okay, maybe one of those really like deep nuggets of Star Wars that you'd have to start reading the 
that's the novels you know, to find the origin of it or something. That sounds like them. <laughs> yeah. It does. Yeah, that's that's a really cool thing. Excited to hear more of that. Yeah, same. I'm always interested to see what those guys are up to. I didn't realize you put out a solo record either. I just I somehow missed it. It was kind of like, I don't know. I didn't really like trumpet too loudly about it. It's just kind of a thing I did. It's really looking- great. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I'm going to be revisiting it for sure. Thank you. I'd love to like redo some of it, honestly. It's, you know, I recorded it all at home and it's not the best sounding project. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I've come a long way in my recording craft since then. I'm sure. uh, It was cool to do and it's time to do another one. So I'm excited to do that. That would be great, man. I am definitely yeah. interested if you are going to do another solo venture. I like the way you recorded some of the vocals. The vocals are ethereal sounding. There's just some cool effects in it. I don't know. Right I, like on. The, I like the percussive elements and some of the digital drums that you, the flourishes and things that you threw in there. I just, hey, thank you. It's great. I like it a lot. And then your thank voice you. is the thing that carries it for me. That's the thing that my ear is familiar with. And that's kind. I was going to ask you if you recorded it yourself. So that's yeah, cool. Yeah, I did. I did all of it all by myself, except for one song, uh, which John Barry from Runner Runner and Rufio helped me with. Very cool. And with Runner Runner, that's a segment of your career we could talk at length about. Was signing to a major label and being thrust into that machine with Over It? I know it was years apart because I want to say Step Outside of Yourself came out in 2006. That's right. Okay. Did that influence traveling and morphing into Runner Runner? Is that something that influenced that a little bit? Or was it just sort of a product of the times and everything that happened after Step Outside Yourself? Well, so after Step Outside Yourself came out, we toured very aggressively in support of it. But then we lost our label and our booking agent about a year later in 2007. And it was for a variety of reasons. The biggest disappointment there for us was the loss of our booking agent because she was, you know, she kind of felt like family for us and had gotten us so many opportunities. But her plate was fuller than she could handle. And our business prospects were kind of uncertain at best at that juncture. So when she got the call that we were being dropped from the label, she decided that we it would be best if we just parted ways. So we did. Was and- it the same? I won't mention her name, but was it the same as Yellow Cards? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. in hindsight, I have nothing but love for her. She's great. She was amazing for us. And we were obviously disappointed by all of this, but we just decided to keep going because we thought, well, hell, we'll just make another record in a year and we have lots of friends to go on tour with. Sure. So we did that. We And we had a new band member in, in the form of Ryan Ogren who had joined us um, mm-hmm. to play the Step Outside Yourself songs on the road and kind of be a secret weapon in the band, singing a lot of, of backup vocals and playing guitar for us. Yeah. Which was really great. He's an old friend. And so we started a new chapter where we were just collaborating with a whole new scene of people Mm -hmm. and then seth our bass player expressed a desire to go home and go back to college and we of course were totally supportive of that so he bounced and and uh john from rufio started coming around more and kind of filled in that void we had just a new creative landscape going on and and songs started to emerge from it Mm -hmm. and some of these we we recorded in into an EP that we were going to pitch as a new artist, but it was still very much like sort of the next over it album. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I loved that first EP you guys released. And there was, I think there was one song that you sang lead on, right? 
There are one or two songs on there that were from this batch. There's okay. one called Believe and one called See You Around. And I think those are the two. Yeah, we just kind of gradually shifted into this new configuration. And then the band collectively agreed that we should just try completely clean slate. Mm-hmm. And um, Ryan had lots of song ideas. And he just kind of emerged as the lead singer. And we just reconfigured that way. It was, wasn't too long before we connected with this guy, Tommy Henriksen, who uh, went on to produce our first couple of releases. We really enjoyed working with him and felt confident that we were embarking in a completely new direction. So we were just like, okay, this is cool. Let's see what happens. We basically just started over completely at that point and decided to take the same approach and go on tour with friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, it eventually led to an even bigger record deal, which was the joint venture we did with David Letterman's company, Worldwide Pants. And Capital? And Capital, yeah. Very cool. I love those songs. It's definitely a different animal than Over It, but I was a fan of both. And Yeah, me too. I really love the EP. That EP came out, and that's right when The American Life, we were writing our first iteration of songs. And I think that really influenced where we were going and where we were headed. It felt new and modern. It was the same thing where my ear understood yours and Ryan's voices because we had played a bunch of shows with Donald Down. And I was a big fan of them as well. And it was really yeah. cool when he joined over it. He was a great addition. And I love all of the textures of vocals where it's predominantly you on Step Outside Yourself, but there's a few lines from Ryan here and there. And that's really cool. Yeah. Um, actually, he sang on the song Serial Kisser on Timing is Everything as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I was listening to that the other day and I thought, oh yeah, he sang on that song too. Did he do something Um, on Silver Strand? I don't remember. I feel like he did. Maybe. Jeez. I'm trying to think. Maybe it's more hidden, more buried. It was a thing he did a bunch of times. It was really great. Yeah, great. But yeah, it was was so awesome when he came to to join us and over it. I mean, I felt that it took our live sound and live presence to a very great new level. I just feel like there wasn't anything we couldn't play. There wasn't anything we couldn't represent that we could otherwise at practice or in the studio. Sure. And And in Runner Runner. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, totally. And then you released your solo record in 2012. Yep. And that was a year after Runner Runner's full length was the plan to do a follow-up well i guess but it very quickly evaporated into nothing we basically we worked on the record for like we had the bulk of the of what would become the runner runner album ready in the summer of 2009 when we went on tour basically on our own with the audition and spitalfield a bunch of really cool bands on that tour it was like a sort of a diy punk rock pop punk tour And then we found a really great manager, and that manager led to the connections, which would develop into that joint venture deal. Um, So I think the record finally was recorded and released by, it was like October 2010. But then by the summer of 2011, we kind of just ran out of tour dates. And around the same time, we ran out of like so, like the familiarity level of the songs at radio started to like reach this critical threshold where it's not fresh anymore but not getting enough spins to keep growing and we just got out of all of our deals management just suggested we'd we get out of our deal and so we did and um 
yeah, we just never, never pushed forward on a, on a subsequent release. So no. Okay. Yeah. It's one of those things where the stars have to align. There was a period of time where I was hearing so obvious on the radio and I was seeing Oh yeah, for sure. All, yeah. of that, all of that worked full steam ahead for a good 18 months. Yeah. I think that was the first time I was introduced to the idea of radio streaming like Pandora. And I remember Pandora was always on in the background and they really liked Runner Runner. That seemed to be in the shuffle of what we were listening to quite a bit. So huh, nice. That probably helped to a certain extent. It's probably a lot of factors that didn't lead you to aggressively pursue doing another record immediately after that. You guys have been doing it for a long time at that point. You probably just needed a breather and a break, but it happens, right? The major label is a different machine. True story. I mean, we went through that process twice. It was very, very educational, let's say. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It's like, we, sh- it's like what you were talking about in the beginning. It was just so many dazzling experiences and just being comfortable with uh, using resources that seem uncanny at first. Mm-hmm. And we made a really good go of it. So I'm proud of that. Absolutely. You should be. Yeah. And we, we all get to benefit from your art being this lasting thing too. Yeah. For whatever reason, at that point in time, around mid-2012, I started to randomly get work uh, doing recording for audiobooks and and various things. So I decided to go back to college and finish my degree and learn about recording, which I did. Cool. Yeah. You were along for the ride. You were staying present. Yeah. And accepting opportunities. That's great. And is that what you do predominantly now? When yeah. It comes to recording? For the last seven years now, I've been working as a recording dialogue mixer. So the guy who records the dialogue for mostly animation, but also movies and TV. And as a sound designer, the guy who or the person who works on uh, the cutting sound effects for the same. Fun. That's yeah. rad, dude. It's That's really great. cool. And cool. Uh, I, don't, I haven't, I won one uh, motion Picture Sound Editors Guild a Golden Reel Award, but I've been nominated for several Daytime Emmy Awards for sound effects editorial and uh, for recording as well. So, it's, Dude, it's congratulations, really man. That's amazing. That's really thank you, cool. Thank you. Yeah, and that's exciting. And you stayed in California. Still here. It's got to be your second home by now, I would imagine. Yeah, You've for sure. Almost as long as the East Coast. I do love it out here. It's true. Yeah. How are things? I mean, I'm sure it was getting a little claustrophobic for you guys during COVID. I'm sure we yeah, you know, hours about that in and of itself. But how was that for you? Are you? It was. It was excited? bizarre, but uh, I was very lucky in that I had to spend very little time alone. My wife mm-hmm. and I were amazingly uh, more in love now than we were in the beginning, and uh, it was the most time we had spent together since we met. Honestly, that's great. Which was yeah. cool. And potentially very challenging. But also my brother-in-law uh, lived with us for the majority of the time. So we were all kind of hunkered down and develop our little tribal routine. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I'm glad it brought you guys together. I Thank think that, you. that happens. God. And then the opposite happens sometimes, unfortunately. <laughs> but Yeah, well, not everyone can get along forever. That's just life. We do our best if we're, if we're if we're lucky. True. Yeah. And you guys were tested and you guys aced it. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool, man. Well, good for you. I'm happy to hear that you're happy and things are going well for you. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much again for agreeing to do this. It's been really fun talking to you. It's been great talking to you too, Kyle. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. uh, 
Maybe when I have some new music to share, we can chat more about the uh, random philosophy. Dude, I'd be honored. For real, if you put something out, I would love to pick your brain about it and talk to you about it. I, I feel like I could talk for hours about this stuff. Ah, uh, thank what are, you. What has you excited these days? Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but around 2015, a phoenix rose from the, the would-be ashes of the Grateful Dead in the form of a band called Dead & Company, which is fronted mm -hmm. by none other than the famous, famous pop singer John Mayer, mm -hmm. uh, guitar virtuoso in his own right. And so I happen to get really into the Grateful Dead in the last six years. So the Grateful cool. Dead get, gets me really excited. That's awesome. Um, Are you going to go see them? They just announced a tour, right? They did. Ago? They did. I think I'm going to go see at least a few of those shows. Cool. Uh, least of which will be Halloween night here in Los Angeles at the Hollywood Ooh. Bowl, which will be amazing. Um, so that's really cool. But uh, just always kind of scanning for punk rock stuff to be excited about because that's still like my favorite thing, I think. I just like, I love to hear well-crafted songs that don't play by the rules and might be like a little more louder, jagged around the edges than what works on the radio. I feel like that's really still what gets me excited. I've yeah. been listening to a lot of Bob Mould, uh, Bob Mould Band and Sugar and Husker Du. Bob Mould from Husker Du, right? He's yeah, yeah. One of the singers and guitar, great, great guitar player, super influential. And I don't know if you know this, but his nephew, I think it's his nephew, Jackson, uh, was the stunning guitar player of that band Slick Shoes. Are you serious? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. He's, you said Jackson and I was like, he's going to say Slick Shoes, isn't he? That's I right. didn't know that. That's like, right. He's, he's Bob Mould's yeah. nephew? Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> Um, that's insane that guy rips um, right oh my gosh oh dude i mean game time and we were trying to emulate the guitar stuff from slick shoes that was a huge influence to us and i know it was yeah. for rufio too yeah that's what crazy he's back in the band too by the way yeah yeah i heard that recently um i recently heard something really cool called heavenward it's a project from my band uh, my band my friend kemteen mohager he's been in a few bands himself Originally from Denver, I think he lives out here now and he's a songwriter and artist. Uh, but this band Heavenward's really cool. It's like kind of like gloomy, romantic, grunge, cool. but like sleek with kind of like a pop punk sheen on it. Yeah, I, th I really like that. I just heard that in the last few days. Uh, Heavenward, check that out. I will, absolutely. And for um, sure. what else? What else is like new and good? Brandy Carlisle, not new, but very good. She had a hit back in the day, right? She had a few. She continues to have hits, but she's one of these artists who's just so like true to her own journey that most people don't know her by name. But if they see the name, it might feel familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I think I, I saw an interview from 2011 or 2010 with you, and you were mentioning that you had just seen Katie Tunstall. Oh, I love. I don't Katie know why. Tunstall. Yeah, I, I got know into why, her. I I totally got into her because of the Virgin Records connection. I got a free copy of her album and just fell in love with it. But cool. she's awesome. Very cool. Well, Red, yeah. yeah. One of these days, I'll definitely go to a, a Dead & Company show. It sounds like a lot of fun. I have a client who's really, really into it, and he's been to a few shows. Who's your client? He's a friend of mine. His name is Chase. Okay. Cool. He may listen to this. He's listened to a couple episodes. Hi, yeah, Chase. you should uh, connect me with Chase on Instagram or whatever. I want to be buddies. Yeah, for sure. I will. He's great. He definitely knows over it. Definitely grew up oh. listening to over it. So, well, Jesus, any, any over it fans out there who are also deadheads, I need to know. 
This is, <laughs> this is required at this point. Um, yeah, I'll connect you guys. Okay, cool. Well, cool, man. Well, All right, Kyle. Again, I'll talk to you soon. You so I look much. forward to it. Enjoy yeah, the rest yeah, of your yeah. Sunday. Thanks for being flexible on the scheduling, too. I really appreciate it this week. Of was, course, my woo. man. You as well. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend, and I'm sure I'll stay in touch, but have a okay, great cool. day, okay? Let me know if you need anything. You too. All right, dude. Bye. Take it easy. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) 